I think it's nearly impossible to try and stay abreast of current events and not simultaneously need to remind ourselves to care for our individual mental health. Not only for ourselves, but hopefully to contribute to the sanity of our collective as well. I was so pleased to read last week that at one of the Garden World's biggest show events, London's RHS Chelsea Flower Show, held the last week of May, judges had awarded a gold medal to a garden entitled The Mind Garden, designed by Andy Sturgeon and supported by Crocus. With the idea of mental health care being intertwined with our gardens, this week we revisit a best-of conversation from 2020 with British psychologist, researcher, and gardener Sue Stewart-Smith, author of The Well-Gardened Mind. Enjoy. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. Continuing our exploration of creative thinking and the garden, we're joined by British psychiatrist and psychotherapist Sue Stewart-Smith, herself a gardener. Her new book, backed by years of research, is a personal and professional look at the creative and generative power of the act of gardening on the physical and the creative intellectual mind and spirit. The Well-Gardened Mind on the Restorative Power of Nature was published this year. Sue joins us from her home and garden in Hertfordshire to share more. Welcome, Sue. I'm very pleased to join you, Jennifer. Can you describe for listeners what your current relationship is to plants, both professionally and personally, Sue? Um, Yes, I can. I I think it's important to say that that I um, I was training as a psychiatrist as I was learning about gardening I'm a psychotherapist okay so and I, I did that training in, in psychoanalytic psychotherapy after I finished my training in, in psychiatry so my introduction to gardening was came in my mid-20s when I married my husband Tom Stuart Smith and at that point he was setting out on his garden design career and, uh, you know, since then he's gone on and, and become very celebrated. He makes gardens all around the world now. But, but when we married, we had this extraordinary opportunity of um, moving to a barn that we converted on a, a patch of land very near his parents' house. And it, it was in the middle of an arable field, a wheat field. So for him as a designer, this was an extraordinary chance to make a garden where there was nothing before. And we did it by gradual degrees. You know, we, we sort of bit off a little bit more of land and enclosed it and, and worked on it. And then, and it's progressed. It's still in many ways work in progress. And, but it, he, he'd, he'd been gardening since he was a teenager and his mother was a passionate gardener. Uh, but I knew absolutely nothing about gardening. And, and in fact, if anything, you know, I was a bit of a gardening skeptic. So, um, you know, I, I'd sort of, you know, particularly through my, the university years, I, you know, I, I sort of regarded, I think, you know, gardening in the same category as housework, you know, mm-hmm. just perhaps chores <laughs> to get out of the way, um, maybe a bit nicer because you're outdoors. Um, I loved nature, though. I loved nature. And, you know, I loved my husband. So I was determined to, you know, learn to love gardening as well. And so the first the first five years that I was gardening, um, which was when I was a very junior psychiatrist, it was very, very much sort of, you know, just the things we were trying to do together. And we also had very small children at that point. And 
And I, you know, I and the children rather sort of tagged along with his various tree planting projects and things like that. When our youngest was five years old and went to school, I decided I actually really wanted to, you know, properly sort of have a little patch of my own. And we made a tiny herb garden for me. And I'd always loved cooking. And, and I was actually interested in medicinal herbs as well. So that was what got me going properly. That was my sort of first real connection with growing plants and, and you know, watching them, learning about them, you know, tending them, I think, and, and seeing, seeing how they germinate, you know, just the very p- process of things mm. coming to life from seed, yeah. uh, which I, you know, to me was just, it, and still is, one of the most extraordinary and exciting things. You know, it's a sort of mystery in a way that, that never quite goes away. Uh, I certainly never take for granted that my seeds are going to germinate, <laughs> and I always feel a thrill when they do. Um, so that was how I started. And from that, it, that it was a kind of small step to vegetable gardening. Mm-hmm. And I got very into sort of, you know, produce. And I think also it helped us carve out different parts of the garden, different kinds of, you know, you know for Tom, our main garden was his sort of artistic canvas, if you like. And, and the veg garden was very much about sort of homemaking and linked with cooking. Um, and, you know, he sometimes helps me in the veg garden too. It's not like we have totally separate territories but it's just sometimes quite helpful to have that that to feel it's your own patch and you can create what you want in it mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and your your current garden which you have now been in for how many years this was we started this garden 30 years ago yeah. over 30 well, yes over 30 years ago yeah. I think yeah and it's yeah. a yeah. total of about I, I want to say two and a half acres is that what I recall from the book it's um that you cultivate well it, Yes, it probably is about that. There's more. There's more. I mean, we 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 have about four or five acres immediately around the house, mm-hmm. and um, some of that is a is a wildflower meadow. So it's not cultivated land, but it is land that we've taken back from cultivation, mm-hmm. and it's that that's been a very pleasurable thing to see unfold. Uh, is how, how how sort of rich that that meadow has become in terms of flowers and insects, butterflies and um, moths and so on. It's 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 wonderful. And from what I understand, also it's not exactly in the middle of nowhere. Although it sounds very rural and idyllic, which I think it is, but it also has um, a, an outer boundary that is much more not real life because our gardens are very much our real life, but, uh, but a different kind of life. Can you explain that for listeners? Yes, I can. I mean, I think, I think we live only about 20 miles from London. So almost directly North. And we live between three quite substantial towns, St. Albans, Hemel Hempstead and Watford. And that we're like a little pocket handkerchief Mm. of, um, of, of countryside, a sort of remnant, I suppose. Mm-hmm. And we're also quite near two motorways. So depending on which way the wind blows, uh, we, you know, we're, we're very aware of outside, outside civilization and, uh, you know, industrial life, as it were. And uh, we're sort of embedded in suburbia, but, but you know, the actual context, immediate context here doesn't feel like that. Yeah. And we do have, we're very lucky, we have wonderful views over fields and woodland. So you can sort of 
convince yourself in the moments that you're you're deeper in the countryside than you actually are. Okay. Um, but, but for us, for both of us, that's very important. And I think, um, you know, you said it's, it's a real life. And I think there is that is an aspect of real life, mm -hmm. isn't it? Mm -hmm. Particularly in the world that we're living in now and all the issues around people's contact with nature. Um, and that is one thing in time that we want to, we're trying, Tom and I are trying to develop here as a, a community-based gardening project, yeah, yeah. Um, which would help help link people who don't have access to gardens and nature to, to be able to do that. Right. And you say that you as a gardener were really kind of kick-started when you married Tom and, and had children and started this relationship of this 30 years with the barn and the gardens there. But once you do that and then you start this research project and your own self-reflection, you recognize that it actually started much earlier, but it was kind of a dormant seed. Can you take listeners back a little bit and share some of those earliest seeds? Yes, I think that was very important in the process of, uh, of um, I suppose, the motivation for writing the book and, and, and the inspiration for it. Because... I think, yeah, for, for for the first sort of 25 years that we lived here, um, I think the, the two parts of my life were sort of in parallel. And it was only when um, I was asked to give a talk at the Garden Museum for a literary festival, uh, the director, Christopher Woodward, um, had asked if he could actually host a, a, what was the very first of what's now been a very successful run of summer book festivals at our barn in our garden and we did that and at the same time he asked me to talk about gardening for the mind and and I got very excited by this idea but I honestly don't know if he hadn't asked me whether I would ever have got mm. going it's something I've, I've often wondered you know mm -hmm. uh, in terms of that seed I do think he played an important role in sowing that seed so th that that set me off on a, on a journey really and and I wrote that talk and while I was writing it I recalled the story that I'd grown up with in my childhood of my grandfather, who'd been a prisoner of war in Turkey in the First World War as a very young man. And he, I mean, he was very lucky to survive. Many, most, 70% of the prisoners of war there didn't survive. He was so malnourished at the end uh, when he finally got home that the doctors only gave him a few months to live. My grandmother, sort of rescued him. She'd waited for him. She nursed him. She rescued him. But he was still very traumatized, uh, even sort of, you know, a year and a half later. And he got the opportunity to, to attend a, a year-long horticulture rehabilitation course. And there were many, you know, the, the First World War is very interesting. I think it is in many ways the birth of horticultural therapy, although they didn't call it that, because there were many of these kind of trainings, reconnecting, um, injured and and um, sort of shell-shocked or neurasthenic, as they were often called, servicemen, back to the land as, as a form of treatment and also helping them find useful work after. So he did that. And then he, he was left with a lifelong love of gardening. And, you know, to all intents and purposes, you know, someone who certainly didn't wear his traumas on his sleeve. He, he'd found some way of, of reconciling himself you know, and went on. He didn't, he didn't work as a gardener, but, but he absolutely, you know, he, he kept the family self-sufficient during the Second World War. Uh, and he had a great love of growing orchids. And that, that he went on doing that until very late in his life. 
So that was a very important inspiration for writing the book, mm -hmm. actually. Yeah. Um, the, the, the other, in the other direction, I think, you know, I was just, I was increasingly aware in my professional life of, in one level, the sort of growing incidence of anxiety and depression mm -hmm. that we, we've been seeing for some time now, and the growing, um, a kind of growing malaise around um, social isolation, um, fragmented communities, you know, just the sort of, uh, the state of, of the modern world that we're living in and the and I think also the rise of technology and you know that comes with a price doesn't it because mm -hmm. it, it, it can keep people more isolated than they would otherwise have been you know I mean isolated in the sense of their direct communities around them you know everybody is connecting but they're connecting with people who are far away yeah. uh, and I, I, I sometimes felt particularly in the NHS we'd been through a phase of services being cut back a lot We'd lost quite a lot of our day hospitals. And I would sometimes be seeing patients and they would be coming for weekly therapy and it might be almost the only thing they did in their week yeah. because, you know, there wasn't anything else. So I, I, I wanted to kind of look at, look at gardening from that point of view as well in terms of as a resource for communities, um, not just for mental health services, but also... Um, just for society at large, really, about what 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 it might offer us at this moment in time, uh, or at that that moment in time, and now, of course, in this moment in time in the pandemic, uh, it's really taken on even greater relevance. Yeah, by a lot, and come into our own sort of you know conscious radars so much more strongly as as a result of that which uh has some great upsides it's one of it is in my opinion one of the odd upsides of the pandemic and shutdowns across the globe is you know people being thrown back onto this instinct and impulse to re-engage with their own survival and and self-care uh, in ways that they haven't been asked to do maybe since the world wars. Um, I think that's right. And actually, I think it's um, in some ways even more powerful than what happened then mm -hmm. because, firstly, I think it's been global. Right. Um, I was just reading today um, a, an article written by a, a medical anthropologist in the Philippines about uh, the enormous importance that actually house plants have come to, to have yeah. in, in the Philippines. So I think it's global. So I really do think, I honestly think never before in history have so many people simultaneously recognized that nature is important for their mental health. Right. I think, I think that, is, that is a first really. Where, where we take that, what happens to that is another question. I think the other thing that's intensified it that is different from the wars is the aspects of lockdown and social isolation that mm -hmm. people have had to had to manage. Um, because, you know, in wartime, people can still, you know, get together and, and, you know, drink and be merry or hug each other or cry together or, mm -hmm. you know, sing together. You know, they can do all those things which have become so restricted now. Mm -hmm. and, and, and the loss of our social supports is, is taking a huge toll on people's mental health. Yeah. yeah. And nature is, to some extent, filling that gap. You know, it can't replace it, but I think it is filling that gap. So I think, I think we are living through a very, very interesting time, um, very, very difficult, very 
very tragic time, but um, I agree. But it might, it might, it might help us reset our relationship to nature collectively. Well, I that is um, certainly where um, I will place my all of my hopes and intentions. And one of the things that strikes me is that you gave that talk in 2013. These were truths that you were exploring and recognizing prior to giving that talk. The pandemic landed in a moment when our largest collective consciousness might not have been aware or fully on board with some of these understandings. But thankfully, one of the things I am so deeply grateful for is that the preparation of the soil for these ideas to be received productively was already underway, well underway, by the time the pandemic came. So that when the largest mass of people all of a sudden went, this is so much disconnection, I can't take it. There was work like yours, like Michael Pollan's, like many indigenous and black writers and workers and thinkers and cultivators around the world had already prepared this soil so that the research was there, the evidence was there. Some of the, as you call them, radical solutions were well underway. And that to me is a monumental source of light and hope. Okay, before I get too far on my grandstand there, Sue. <laughs> mm-hmm. No, it's it's good to hear you say that because I think that's true. And and I think, you know, when I started in 2013, and I, you know, if I if I if I talk to colleagues at work at that point about what I was researching and doing, this is my psychiatry colleagues, they would sort of look at me yeah. as if I was, you know, going going off piste somewhere, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> and uh, and and actually, by the time I finished the book, which is now eighteen months ago, um, you know, actually, already the zeitgeist had changed quite a lot. You know, there was a there was an acknowledgement; it was growing mm-hmm. the acknowledgement that we need, you know, the role that gardens and nature can play for mental yeah. health. So it no longer it seemed like such a weird thing to be doing. Yeah. Um, but but as you say, you know that that we can draw on all of this now um, in in the situation that we are in. Yeah. So you gave the talk in 2013. Did you start work on the book sort of formally right at that point, or tell us about the process of deciding to actually expand these concepts into a book and your your research from there, and then we'll we'll kind of walk through the different parts. Um, we won't have time to go through the entire book, sadly, but um, I think we can get to some of the basic concepts, uh, at least the ones you know that strike me, and, and hopefully the ones that you really want to bring forward as well. So yes, I gave that talk, and it was a you know forty minute talk at a, a festival, and. A number of people came up to me afterwards and said, oh, you know, you should do something with that. And and I'd felt when I was researching it that, that it, I got such a such stimulation, I think, and excitement from bringing these two aspects of my life together, you know, suddenly realising how important, for instance, things like attachment, attachment theory were, and thinking about the unconscious. And I, I sort of discovered as well when I researched that talk how important gardens had been in Freud's lifetime. And I'd studied Freud many years before and continued to read Freud, but I'd never been aware of that. So that I was left with lots of things that I wanted to look at more and in more detail. 
But do you know what it's like? Getting a book off the ground isn't isn't easy. No. And um, so, and I was very, very busy at that point. You know, I was actually running a psychotherapy service and I was the lead clinician in Hertfordshire. And I, I approached a couple of book agents and they sort of said, oh, interesting. One, one or two said, not for me, but, you know, they said interesting, but it kind of, I don't know, it was like, go away and write a proposal. Um, and then through a friend, I, I was put in touch with a wonderful woman called Felicity Bryan. I sent her the talk and she came back to me and just said, come and see me. I think this is fantastic. Mm. And I went to see her and she, she kind of held my hand through the right proposal writing process, uh, you know, gave me the confidence to do it really. Mm -hmm. And um, what I was writing about was enormously important to her because as a child, her mother had suffered from manic depression and many hospital admissions. And she knew as a child, if she got her mother working in the garden when she got back, she would begin to speak again. She would begin to come to life again. Now, now the reason I'm talking about Felicity at length is very sadly she died between the publication of the UK book and the, the book in the USA. Mm. She'd been ill for some time. It's not a COVID-related death. But, but you know, I, I'm deeply, deeply indebted to her uh, for having, having had the faith in the book and, and helped me put it out into the world, you know, to see its potential. And really from then on, you know, she found a publisher for me in the UK and in the USA and in Holland quite quickly. And that was it, you know, it was like, go off and research the book. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. We're speaking today with gardener, psychiatrist, and psychotherapist Sue Stewart-Smith of the United Kingdom. Her new book, The Well-Gardened Mind, explores how the garden can be a vital place for cultivating the mind. We'll be right back for more. Stay with us. Hey, it's Jennifer. I'm really taken with the idea of attachment gardening, a variation on the idea of attachment parenting, or the practice of secure attachment in any of our relationships, where there is a focus on health, security, trust, care, compassion, and individuation. In this way, We relate to the dynamic and collective life of our garden spaces with these values and goals in mind. Our garden is not us, nor is it an object. How we care for it and work with it may be a reflection of who we are, but it is not a stand-in for us. Our gardens are unique and valuable on their own merits. Since rereading a bit about attachment parenting after first reading The Well-Gardened Mind, I was reminded of the four S's of attachment parenting as articulated by Dr. Daniel Siegel. These four S's are safe, soothed, seen, and secure. And he and other childhood behavioral scientists posit that these four S's create what is called a secure attachment. And it is born of security on both sides, the parent and the child's, or the garden and the gardener. One free to grow into what it is meant to be, and the other free from an obsessive and narcissistic need for control and domination. Hmm. 
Of these four S's, the two that really jumped out at me when thinking about my own life and personality and small suburban garden space are safe and seen. In this theory of gardening, where I am a partner to my garden, I am obligated to both keep it safe from chemicals and overuse and degradation and neglect, and to see it, to really see its own personality and desires, its needs and its wants. Do I really, really see my garden, her land, her ways? Because as Sue points out, while I am gardening my space, that space is likewise gardening me just as surely. And the little gardeners in my brain that Sue has told us about are hard at work every day, every night, pruning my brain and pointing me in a direction of more creative thinking. We're back now to our conversation with Sue Stewart-Smith, British psychiatrist and psychotherapist whose book, The Well-Gardened Mind on the Restorative Power of Nature, and I might add gardening, was published this year. As we come back, Sue has shared that once she began her official research for the book, she began to visit sites across the United Kingdom and North America engaged in gardening work as mentally and emotionally restorative. This kind of work is going around everywhere, on everywhere. That's what I discovered very quickly. And everything from sort of large projects to very small, you know, often very unsung projects, sometimes just started by one very motivated person. So there's a wealth of, a wealth of stuff that's going on in terms of therapeutic gardening and community gardening. So that, so that was the beginning, really. Yeah, and I was really struck by how... Um how many you were able to visit. And I wondered if your experience in doing this was a little like mine in doing the program I do, where I focus on people doing interesting things like what you're doing and what they are doing, you know, the prison programs and the, the community level programs and whatever they may be. One of the things that strikes me is how once you find one, you are led to five more and then 10 more. And they are like mycorrhiza in the soil. There is such a network out there that we don't necessarily see, but they're there working. And um, it kind of blows my mind. And I was wondering if you had that same kind of experience. Yes, I did. Absolutely. I agree about that, that, that there is this sense, there is a, a sort of underground network. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But I think the the main thing for me, because... I visited a lot of projects that don't feature in the book as well, because obviously not everything guess, yeah. could. But but what I was seeking, apart from understanding how the projects are run, was was I interviewed people in depth. Yeah. And you know, having a background as a psychotherapist was very useful for that. And and there were some people who were really happy to talk to me for you know an hour and a half at a time about their experiences. Mm-hmm. And, and what, I, what I was hoping to do in the book was to find ways to articulate, you know, to put into words these, these very deep existential 
changes we can experience, levels of sort of solace and, and joy and so on. Because most of it is, is, is it's all nonverbal, isn't it? Gardening mm. is not. It's outside language. And sometimes some of the writing about gardening can sound a bit sort of, um, just a bit like it's a nice thing to do, mm. you know, rather than actually it's a very profound thing yes. to, to get involved in and connect with. So I, that's what I was trying to capture. And some people just were able to kind of articulate their experiences in such beautiful ways. Uh, and that for me was always a thrill when I, when I encountered somebody like that and was able to include them in the book. Because I think, I think it can be very hard actually to put these things into words. I think it can, and I think you achieved your goal. I, for, for listeners who haven't read the book, uh, I would share that you have um, a wonderful quote, uh, and I'm not sure which chapter it comes from, but I have it here. Gardening is unusual in the extent to which it encompasses the emotional, the physical, the social, the vocational, and the spiritual aspects of life. And I think that is why it's above and outside of language, because it incorporates all of our languages, not just our verbal languages. And that is one of the ones that really struck me. The way you came to organize the book, maybe maybe talk a little bit about this, Sue, um, and you start right off with the concept in the very first uh, introductory chapter, Beginnings, and this equating the relationship between a mother and a child and the earth and us, and this sort of attachment gardening, as it were. Will you walk through that a little bit for listeners? Yes, I, I suppose this is very much um, about me coming at this subject from my psychotherapy background, and and but my own feeling personally too of how important it was for me to put down roots to attach to a place having lost my father when I was 21 and having sort of you know lost our, I mean my mother moved to a different home but having lost a sense of home if you like family home so I think I draw on the work of John Bowlby uh, who who founded attachment theory? Mm-hmm. Uh, and what I found interesting is when I went back to Bowlby, is as though you know he developed his theory entirely in the in the realm of the mother child. He also does link it. He, he was very interested in um, uh, you know animal behaviour and animal development and uh, in in the importance of. of of territory for animals as well, you know, the bonding to the mother, the bonding to the nest and the place. And I, I think that we've, we've come to completely devalue in many ways uh, our need for attachment to place. You know, we live in such a mobile society and a sort of rather restless society in many ways. And, and that's something about the pandemic, isn't it? It's forced people to stay in one place. So, and what I was beginning to see in, in the, projects I was visiting and how much I'd experienced it myself is that this is a very stabilizing element in your life, you know, and actually your, you know, when, when, when your relate, your relationships are, you know, disrupted or your other primary attachments are disrupted, actually the, the place kind of is a place that can hold you. Um, and it can, it can sort of give you that sense of security, which we all 
want and need uh, a sense of safety, you know, the familiar. Uh, and and, and that, that effect has many, many, many therapeutic applications, you know, particularly in trauma, for example, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that, that, because, because that, that is, that is the way you have to start from that level of a, uh, of attachment and security and safety. You go from this idea of the, uh, the relationship of being held and attaching and security to some really interesting research and discussion on the neurology of our brains and the ideas of neurogenesis, and then these wonderful little gardeners actually in our brains. Can you explain this to people? Because this just had me um, so excited. I don't know why. I just thought this was fabulous. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's a lovely it's a lovely metaphor, mm. isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, you know, it really does trouble me. I mean, I think it's quite a serious issue yeah. that we have slipped into without really realizing it repeatedly you know drawing analogies for our brains with with computers so you know that that is the dominant metaphor in many neuroscience books popular books particularly um and in language you know we talk about being hardwired uh you know we um i've even seen uh people say oh it works like a bit of app an app in your brain right. or something like yeah. that you know uh, because the you know the, the computer dominates our lives so much, but we really cannot begin to think of ourselves like machines. And that that idea that actually through rethinking ourselves and understanding ourselves as part of nature, I think the garden can really help us to do that. Just, just getting in touch with the soil uh, and with earth and a sense of our commonality with it. But I actually think the neuroscience is, is showing us um, there are grounds for, for it being more than just a metaphor, uh, the idea that the brain is, is like a garden because it is kept healthy by a, a mass of immune cells called microglia cells. And until about 10 years ago, it was thought that they, they simply played a role in protecting the brain from infection or, or dealing with infection if it, if it happened. Now it's understood that they actually, they're, they're crucial from, from the very beginning of life. And they play a role in the shaping of the brain, the growth of the brain, and importantly, in the way that the brain is pruned and weeded and your toxins are removed and growth, you know, growth of neurons can be enhanced through the brain's fertilizer, as it's sometimes called, which is the neurotrophic factors you're referring to. Mm-hmm. So these little cells are, 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 are sometimes called the brain's resident gardeners. And I think it's so important that we understand ourselves in that way because, because it is about recognizing that we have the same rhythm, natural rhythms of repair and restoration. Our need, our need for rest, particularly in this age, this 24-hour age, you know, um, uh, when so many people don't get enough sleep for example mm-hmm. and the microglia cells really work at night that's when they that's when they do their do their gardening and what i love is that each one actually tends its own right. patch of neural yeah. territory so they they really do have their own <laughs> their own garden to tend and the description of it being um not dissimilar from the the i think they're even called dendritic 
cells or veins or something, but being similar to the, the structure of a tree or a root system or a watershed or uh, a foliage, you know, the vascularization in foliage and um, these universal patterns and systems of care were just, that also was one of these moments where I went, whoa, that is so great to see it reaffirmed. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think I think the um, you know the early brain scientists, well, they rec visually they could see. Uh, that's why they called. That's why these neuronal cells, uh, different cells from the microglia, were that these are the large um, axons with branches at the top were called dendrites after trees. Yeah. And neurologists will talk about the um, you know the dendritic tree or, or, or neuronal arbors. And very recently, actually, uh, some neuroscientists looked at the mathematical patterns governing the growth of neurons and compared them to plants. And it, it, is, it is the same three mathematical laws that govern the patterns of growth in both. So I was, I was really thrilled when I saw that bit of work because I found that after I'd been writing about the microglia, yeah. that it kind of added, added to the argument. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. We're speaking today with gardener, psychiatrist, and psychotherapist Sue Stewart-Smith. Her new book, The Well-Gardened Mind, explores how the garden can be a vital place for cultivating the mind. We'll be right back for more with Sue. Stay with us. Okay, so thinking out loud this week. Veriditas. Oh my goodness. Come on, say that out loud. Veriditas. So great. And used so variously by the German Benedictine abbess and polymath of the 1100s, Saint Hildegard of Bingen, to mean both vitality and the green, thriving, living force of mental, physical, and emotional, spiritual health of us humans. And as so many guests on Cultivating Place, Sue Stewart-Smith being the most recent to note, the veriditas of the natural world and that of our inner physical and psychological worlds are profoundly and utterly inextricable. You cannot have one without the other. We can wager that ancient and modern land-based cultures have similarly beautiful and melodious words or phrases for this very same idea, veriditas. It would be fun to learn many more of these verbalizations of something we as gardeners know to be way beyond language, and yet a truth we hear and recognize every day. We're back now to our conversation with Sue Stewart-Smith, British psychiatrist and psychotherapist, whose book, The Well-Gardened Mind on the Restorative Power of Nature, and I might add gardening, was published this year. So we go on from this 
uh, some of these foundations that you lay in the book, both in beginnings and then in green nature, onto some of your site visits and the expansion of your research and, and knowledge. It's a good, long, dense book. As I say, we cannot get to all of it. But uh, if you were to pull out one or two areas of the book that you might want to share with listeners right now, um, you know, the ones that come to mind for me would be seeds and self-belief and then radical solutions and then probably green fuse. But maybe there are others that you would like to share uh, before those. Oh, I, th I think seeds is a good place to start. Mm. Yeah, that chapter is called seeds and self-belief because what I look at there is how how empowering it can be, particularly for people who are suffering from very low self-esteem or suffering from anxiety or depression, that actually to, to, to be able to take part in, in this transformational process and to feel that you've made this happen. Mm. It's a very uh, affirm, affirming, it's sort of life-affirming. And, and actually, I, I build on Michael Pollan's sort of lovely account in his book, Second Nature, of uh, age four. He's in the bushes in his family garden. So he relates this memory uh, of discovering a watermelon in the bushes and realizing that a few months before he spat, he spat a seed out there. <laughs> and and he 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 has this he says I made this happen and he rushes with the watermelon in to show it to his mother, but he 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 also says the magic of that moment kind of mm -hmm. motivated much of his subsequent gardening life. Um, in fact, the, in in the book itself, it's it's right. a rather sort of tragic tale because he drops <laughs> it on the on the kitchen, on the step on the step, you know, um, and it and it and it bursts. But um, so he's that attempt to recover that feeling. And I think we can all feel that. And, and for me, it was so such an important revelation talking to the prisoners who I interviewed right. on Rikers Island, you know, in the, the project run by the Horticultural Society of New York, um, who have now eight garden projects there uh, and run a... Um, uh, another project in, uh, outside prison called the Green Team, which involves prisoners in community gardening. And, um, but it was really understanding how important it was for them to feel that this was the first time in their lives for some of them, that they'd actually felt they'd done something they were proud of. You know, yeah, one, one man very, very movingly described to me a phone call he had had with his mother, his 80-year-old mother, a few weeks before, right. after they'd been harvesting the squash. And it was the first positive conversation he had had with his mother for, for decades. And he actually just felt he had something good to tell her. But the important thing is it, it gave him an idea that maybe he could change his life. You know, he'd been in and out of jail um, and he wanted to change. He just couldn't see how. And, and that, that process of working with, you know, the, the regenerative power of nature and the renewal of nature does give people a sense of belief. You know, if, if, if it strikes them at the right moment in their lives, you know, this is not a magic solution, as it were, no. but it has that potential to be so 
so sort of like life changing in a way, I think, that it can set people off in a different direction. Well, and as you point out, and it, I think it's right in this section of the book, you, you know, and, and this is reiterated across the book, is that it's this beautiful balance of both self-agency and empowerment, but in the service of something bigger. So we are both very big and powerful and effective. At the same time, we are also very small and one part of a bigger whole and that those that balance between the two is so essential and you have a beautiful quote in this section that is something like gardening teaches us many transferable skills uh such as you know tending and and cultivating and growing and harvesting and all of these things uh but you say self-belief is the most important transferable skill of all. And that was a very poignant sentence to me. Well, I think it's true, isn't it? Because I think mm. if, if you lack self-belief, it's very difficult to to sort of, yeah, to take your life forward, if, if you're in crisis. And often that is the very thing that you lose by definition. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, that, that, that aspect of gardening is so helpful for, for instance, for kids who are at risk. Yeah. And as you say, uh, Jennifer, you know, it, it is this, it's this constant interplay of, you know, being, being in control, being able to create and shape a small part of your world. Uh, but at the same time, you know, having to endlessly negotiate the, the powers of nature and you know actually not not being in control that much um and you know i draw on winnicott winnicott's uh ideas about the importance of moments of illusion in creativity and and in and for children in their play but that that, that needs to be balanced by dis moments of disillusion as well and that but we actually need to experience the illusion first in order to right. to cope with life's knocks <laughs> and setbacks right. you know if we don't have right. that initial experience then, um, then, then we're less equipped to deal with with uh, with the sort of disappointments of life. Right, right. Um, maybe share a little bit about the, you know, the discussion of gardens as biodiversity hotspots, uh, tending not only us but the larger world, and coming back to the the handkerchief of land as you describe it that you are caring for now. Um, maybe maybe talk about that correlation. Yes, and I, I think that that also does link in a way with with radical solutions because I think mm -hmm. it's it's about you know how can we um, help transform our our urban environments and there's some fantastic research uh, that shows it, some of this was carried out by the University of Sheffield here that um, urban and suburban gardens act as hotspots of biodiversity. That's assuming they're, they're gardened in a way with lots of flowers and um, variety in them and, and sort of complexity. And, and no chemicals. Exactly. It's very important to distinguish between you know, this sort of you know, a garden that's just a green lawn and, and maybe yes, diced in lots of, lots of uh, herbicides and, and so on. So, so yes, that gardens can really function as they call, the researchers call them safe houses mm -hmm. for birds and insects and, and um, 
you know, and all, all the kind of microorganisms that live in the soil. And in this country, our, our rural landscape has become very, very depleted. And, and actually, by contrast, gardens are sort of reservoir, and we need, we need to be developing that much more because you know, the level at which these species, many of these species are being threatened or disappearing or declining is, is, is very, very worrying. So I'm, it's something I'm personally very keen on is, is developing that. Um, and, and, and actually, one of, one of the projects I write about in Radical Solutions is the Incredible Edible project in Todmorden. Yeah which is a, you know, it's a post-industrial town north of Manchester in the north of England and had been in terrible decline for, 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 for decades, really, and, and, and then was hit very badly in 2008 by the financial crash. And the group of women who, who started that project simply, they, they were sort of, they set out with guerrilla gardening, really, um, but but you know they and they they've now got a street renamed Pollination Street, which I absolutely <laughs> love. But but they, their project was simply to to plant up and um, allow people to be able to sort of forage in the in the town in the spare spare bits of land and um, spaces that were there, and and do all these things we were talking about to encourage uh, sort of more ecological health. And, and, and that, I think, is a, is a message that's so important to get across at the moment, mm. is that our psychological health and yes. ecological health are so closely entwined. Mm, and we've been blind to that for a very long time, culturally, you know, and sort of waking up to that. And, and literally, you know, if you look at um, research that's been done on different kinds of park environments and how restorative people find them, it's the more biodiverse ones and the more the more ones with more complexity in the planting uh, that people find more more restorative. So this, I think, goes back to our hunter gatherer roots. You know, at some level, the brain is responding to the environments that way back in our you know evolution would have been good for supporting life. You know, flourishing, uh, varied varied landscapes, and you know that's part of our biophilia really yeah. our attachment yeah. to nature so so yes i think it's all it's about how we think of ourselves and how we think of nature really not not in na nature's got a bit um uh you know pared down in our understanding sometimes it's a bit tokenistic isn't it uh and and actually we need to sort of let nature run riot a bit more around us and I think, you know, when you say we've been blind to it for so long, I would also, um, you know, my immediate response to that was we've been blinded to it through cultural pressures and values that don't actually serve anybody. They don't, you know, you, you cite these statistics of depression having overtaken respiratory illness as the greatest disease of our time. And the fact that many children spend less time outside than maximum security prisoners. And these two things reiterate for me the fact that it's not just the birds and the bees and the soil and the biodiversity of plants on our planet that are languishing. 
we as a species are as well. And that co-evolution and interdependence of our well-being with their well-being just cannot be overstated. Have you been surprised by the reception? Well, it's been a very extraordinary thing, really, to to launch the book uh, at this moment in time, because uh, I'd written quite a lot in various places in the book about how uh, historically, at times of crisis, people turn back to the land. And I'd looked at, um, for example, soldiers creating gardens in the trenches during the First World War. Um, and and the, the need, you know, to to create a little bit of beauty in this terrible landscape of of destruction and death. Um, so they were sending home, asking for packets of seeds, for example. Um, and there are many many instances, you know, following natural disasters, uh, also following, you know, like two thousand eight, following the financial crash, we saw that effect. Um, but I didn't think for a moment that the book would actually be published in the middle of a crisis. So, so it was very extraordinary, and it has been extraordinary. And, and it has meant that the book has, um, you know, it got into the Sunday Times bestseller list here. Uh, it's now going to be translated into, I think it's going to be 10 languages. Um, and there's been interest all around the world in a way that I don't think there would have been. Uh, so I'm doing interviews with people in, 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 you know, right across from Australia to all, all sorts of countries. So that's been very, very amazing, really. Um, and, and I guess all we can do is hope that, that out of this, we can, we can rebuild something and come out of this pandemic in, with a very different kind of mindset. And that the, 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 the traumas that, that people will have gone through, one hopes that some, some, some some sense of actually the the idea that we can recover, we can regenerate, we can um, change change our lifestyles, uh, which, as you say, have have been you know human species has been ailing as well for a long time. That this is a moment when when things could really change. I have to hope that we are in the upswing of that cycle, and uh, your book is a great addition to that effort. And I just thank you very much for being a guest on the program today. It's been a great pleasure to speak with you. Thank you so much, Jennifer. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Sue Stewart-Smith is a gardener, a psychiatrist, and a psychotherapist living and working in Hertfordshire with her husband, the acclaimed landscape and garden designer, Tom Stewart-Smith. Her new book, backed by years of research, is a personal and professional exploration on the creative and generative power of the act of gardening. Generative and creative and healing for us as humans, physically, creatively, and intellectually. Her book, The Well-Gardened Mind on the Restorative Power of Nature, was published by Simon & Schuster this year. 
Join us again next week when we consider the idea of mental health and our gardens from an even more poignant perspective. In the wake of the Ovaldi tragedy, I wish this was not such a timely episode, but it is. I will be joined in conversation by Gabrielle, Shanae, and Zeke, founders of the Long Live Love Foundation, whose very personal mission is to support survivors and victims of traumatic violence, in part through a public healing serenity garden in West Oakland, California. Listen in next week. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio and listener-supported through CultivatingPlace.com. For many photos illustrating Sue Stewart-Smith's The Well-Gardened Mind, as well as her home garden shared with her landscape designer husband, Tom Stewart-Smith, head over to CultivatingPlace.com this week. Look for the podcast tab, and there you can read more and see more. And when one of our conversations resonates with you, as the last few episodes have resonated for so many, we'd be honored and grateful if you'd share these episodes with friends, with family, with neighbors. That's how this program grows. Our show producer and engineer is Matt Fiddler. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.